Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 57. Last episode, we dealt with the arrival of the new representatives of the Batavian Republic who'd come to take over the Cape Colony from the British. While the British received Commissioner General Jakob Abraham Eitenhacher de Mist, who was a brilliant organiser and administrator, things did not go well at first. De Mist was to install a new administration, then hand over to a new governor called Lieutenant General Jan Wilhelm Janssens, once the new executive and judicial machinery was in place. The idea was for the British to hand over power formally on the evening of 31st December 1802, so that the Dutch would begin their Batavian Republic rule on the 1st of January 1803. As both sets of officials dined together on New Year's Eve, a British ship hove into view and anchored. Then an urgent message was sent ashore. British Governor Dundas was told to defer the transfer of ownership of the Cape until further notice. These orders had sailed from England on the 17th of October, a week after the Dutch officials had left Holland for Cape Town. The reason was politics, of course. Back in England, Prime Minister Pitt had been expecting to return to office at the head of a new coalition and also had been confident of returning to war against France. The Cape, he said, should remain British for now. Then it was back to assaulting the old enemy, thought Pitt. Napoleon was a megalomaniac who could only be stopped by force. The arrival of the messenger came at midday. As officials were processing the handover, there was a lively and cordial event underway, a banquet celebrating the session and the end of war against France. After the messenger handed over the orders, both sets of officials didn't know where to put themselves. The hors d'oeuvres suddenly appeared less appetizing. Were they now belligerents or friends? The Dutch and the British stood apart from each other stiffly and that was the end of formal banquets until suddenly on the 19th of February, new orders arrived. Prime Minister Pitt had changed his mind. The Cape was going to be Dutch once more. So it was then on March the 4th, 1803, that General Dundas and his British forces and all officials embarked and left the Cape. The Batavians were an interesting crowd, as I partly explained last podcast. They had an intellectual intensity linked to a commitment to humanitarian ideals of the Enlightenment that were going to put them at odds with the frontier farmers. They formed the first real government in South Africa that began with fresh ideals, and even more interesting, they arrived with a determination to actually enforce these ideals. The British had pitched up without any sense of being local. Theirs was a defensive port position, an outpost with the attention fixated on the East and Europe. The machinations of the whirling tribes of Africa were really just a passing flirtation for most of these Europeans. There's another strong vein of irony that will run through this part of the story of South Africa. The Batavians were driven by French revolutionary fervor, liberté, equality, fraternité, and they meant for everyone, at least at first, black and white. The British views were anti-Jacobin, so they didn't like the Dutch at the Cape and the feeling was mutual. But the manner in which the British dealt with the Khoikhoi and the Amakosa was closer to the Boer view, the colonist view, than the Batavian view, at least at first. The British under Dundas had used the words exterminate, for example, similar to the VOC officials who wanted to ethnically cleanse the Cape of rebel Khoi and San. As the Amakosa and the Khoikhoi began to fight and raid more effectively, the British view had shifted quickly to the view of the Trekboers. The Batavians on board the vessels sent to Cape Town thought they were different. But were they? We will see. 
They came into the Cape and more would follow through the 19th and even into the 20th century, most shipped out with the noblest intentions. They brought with them a high-mindedness, a moral superiority, and before sailing some would receive a discourse on considerations of the methods to follow when attending savage peoples. These days you'd call it an orientation booklet. How to try to do as the Romans do while trying to make the Romans more like you. Not in any specific order, the methods included convey to them our arts but not our corruption, the code of our morals and not the example of our vices, our sciences and not our dogmas, and the advantages of civilization and not their abuses. Conceal from them how the people in our more enlightened countries defame one another and degrade themselves by their passions. Thanks to historian Noel Mostad for publishing The Method, In a nutshell, it was the entire philosophy of most colonials, and most colonials failed miserably to stick to the method. It was a Batavian handbook, and the arriving commissioner and others were entranced by the idea that they were heading to virgin intellectual territory where the locals would be impressed by the apparent moral standard. Commissioner-General de Mist himself produced his own little green book, so to speak, a guide for his new Batavian officials in South Africa. Up front, he said that he wanted justice for the Aboriginal inhabitants and a firmer control of the frontier population. He wanted to educate the frontier trekboers. The Batavians believed in education, that they would raise the colony from its lack of literacy, its bizarre religious race fundamentalism, and its inefficiency and economic stagnation. This was a big, bright future. It was exciting, a new day. So, how to go about this mission? Well, the responsibility was divided between the two leaders, General Janssens, the real governor, and Commissioner-General de Mist. First, Janssens set off on a fact-finding tour of the frontier to figure out who was who and what was what. De Mist stayed home in Cape Town, trying to set up the new administration. Of course, poor Janssens rode straight into the Third Frontier War that had reignited. It was hopeless but he wasn't fully aware of just how bad things were until he arrived to see for himself. The British had tried to smooth things over. The departing Dundas didn't exactly admit that there'd been a complete failure in trying to quell unrest along the Zurfeld and the Northern Cape frontiers. But Dundas was clear that a war was going on and said that it should be stopped as soon as possible and that it was possible to stop it. The new Batavian leadership sent a clear message to the new Trekboer subjects. Stop fighting the Amakosa and Khoikhoi immediately. The Boer commandants actually then met with the Khoikhoi and Amakosa leaders and all parties were tired of this no-win war, fortunately. And all parties therefore inclined to peace and concluded peace, as Janssens wrote. This was on February 1803, before the British formally departed. By 18th April 1803, a Dutch military force arrived by sea at Algoa Bay to take over Fort Frederick, while Governor Janssens rode out to that fort all the way from Cape Town. He eventually arrived at Algoa Bay on the 8th of May, well versed by now in some of the settler narratives. The position on the frontier had changed completely compared to 50 years earlier. Now large groups of Rarabe Amakosa were in the Zurfeld, particularly those following in Slumbe. He had well and truly split from his nephew Nika, and their difference of opinion was violent. For the Trekboers and other settlers, Ntlambi was a major problem because he was regarded as the best Amakosa military leader, and now he was living west of the Fish River. 
Remember the main aims for all colonial governments since the first trek Boers arrived in the Eastern Cape was to remove all Amakosa from the Zurfeld. They were supposed to head back to the eastern side of the Great Fish River. Furthermore, the Kronukwebe and Atungwa and other less powerful chiefs like Kabalu and Dange were also in the Zutfeld. They had settled on the land between the Great Fish and the Sunday's rivers and resisted all the efforts to dislodge them. Eventually, British Governor Dundas was forced to recognise their right to remain in 1799. But Anklambi rocked up to the territory in the same year and it was clear that if anyone was going to try to remove the Amatkosa, they'd have to deal with a very potent military leader. Anklambi's followers still speak in the hushed tones of his prowess today. Governor Janssens arrived in Algoa Bay and immediately began to try and get the chiefs living in the Zutfeld to visit him. Remember previously the Amatkosa chiefs had asked the governor to travel from Cape Town to visit them, so they agreed to split the difference. After much difficulty and palaver, Nklambe, Tungwa and Yalusa, Nklambe's brother, made the dangerous journey. They were uncertain what the Dutch had in mind and suspected that the new Batavian administration was working in cahoots with their arch-enemy, Nika. And they had a good reason to think so, because that mischief-maker, Kunrad de Beis, was back with Nika and visiting his mother, his former lover. The discussion between Janssens and Slambe, Tungwa and Yalusa did not go very well. The Amatkosa suspected they were being lured into another of the base's cleverly laid traps. And Nika, remember last, we saw him was fearful and his people had run off after hearing about Slambe's escape, but the Amatkosa chief was rebuilding his power quickly. The Amatkosa living in the Zutfeld were once again fearful of being brought under Nika's control. Obviously, General Janssens had not read the method handbook closely enough because he was locked in the meeting and found everything about the Amatkosa too much. Their looks, their fearsome ways, and their discussions, even their smells, scared him. Henry Lichtenstein was with Janssens, I mentioned him last podcast, and his journals are fantastic for piecing together a few missing links in the history of the period. It was Liechtenstein who picked up fairly early that the Amatkosa were never going to leave the Zutfeld, so trying to talk them into it was impossible. Either by exhortations or menaces, as he bluntly put it. Janssens and his party moved off to meet the object of Nklambe and Kungwa's hatred, Nrika himself. This was some meeting. Liechtenstein's descriptions are rather flowery, but if you close your eyes and think about this moment, you'll recognize just how powerful the various images are. The meeting took place in a typically beautiful Eastern Cape glade. It was grassy on the banks of a flowing river, the Sundays. They were surrounded by thick forest and cliffs. It was there where the Dutch military tents were erected in neat rows, with a Dutch flag flying in front of the governor's lager and very spacious tent. Beyond in the shade were the wagons parked to show the might of the visiting governor. Liechtenstein wrote of this strange scene, this intrusion upon the wild beauty of the land and the contrast that was all human. On one side of the Sunday's river, the rows of white tents on green slopes, the officials or protocols, as they were called, the disciplines of Europe arraigned in a line, all order. The blue-jacketed Valdek infantry stood to attention in a stiff line with their muskets and bayonets upon their shoulders. Then Janssens gave the order and the cannon boomed a salute. Beside the soldiers stood the drummer and on the opposite bank, 
the officers sat upon their horses with drawn swords to welcome Nika. Nika and his court approached the scene along a narrow path. Damakosa were naked beneath their red cloaks. Their assegais were shining brightly in the sun, and they were all serious-faced. Their tread was solemn, and they were filled with decorum and discipline. Two people close together at the Sunday's river in peace and mutual respect. Nika walked in front, his counsellors behind, behind them his mother in a white robe. She was always part of these proceedings, a quiet power behind her son. Behind her was her cart, ready to carry her if required. The scene was sketched by another of the men I mentioned last podcast, Parabacini, which was later shared around Europe as an engraving. There was only one problem with the engraving. Ingrika did not come on foot. He was mounted like Janssen and the officers, and he cantered into the camp along with the Dutch governor. The entire troop created quite a noise, apparently. But Paravaccini, I guess, was trying to elevate Janssen's by having Ingrika on foot, which is a bit silly, really. So the chief was hustled to the governor's cavernous tent, and he walked in holding out his hand, which Janssen's took, and they greeted each other. Liechtenstein and Parabaccini wrote of this scene independently later in their diaries. Liechtenstein in particular, as with other travellers like Barrow, was impressed by Nika. Geika is one of the handsomest men that can be seen, he gushed. Even among the blacks, uncommonly tall, with strong limbs and very fine features. His countenance is expressive of the utmost benevolence and self-confidence. United with a great animation, there is in his whole appearance something that at once speaks the king. All Nika wore to prove his status were rows of white beads around his neck. It is not hazarding too much to say that among the savages all over the globe, a handsomer man could scarcely be found, said our backhanded complimenter Liechtenstein. Nay, one might go further and say that among the sovereigns of the cultivated nations it would perhaps be difficult to find so many qualities united worthy of dignity. Paravaccini wrote something similar and added that Nika's mother, Yesi, showed the same qualities. Nika and his mother, along with two of his wives, dined with Janssen's that night in his tent. The officers, colonists and Nika's counsellors waited outside, gazing in through the flaps. Nika used a knife and fork, which surprised the Europeans, and shared his food with his counsellors at times. He drank very little wine, but his wives apparently liked it still better indeed, as it appeared in the end they rather liked it too well, said Liechtenstein. While this was going on, Janssens wanted to know more about Kunrad de Base, through whom all the preliminary arrangements for the meeting had been negotiated. He was the only one there who was fluent in Amakosa and Dutch, and Nika and his mother trusted his dealings once more. Liechtenstein wanted to meet this giant who had caused all the trouble. As others had found the base, so too Liechtenstein, who said that he had a certain modesty, a certain tiredness in his manner and conversation, a mildness and kindness in his looks, which left no room to suspect that he had lived several years among savages. Of course, he looked like he did, because he had lived amongst people of the land. He did not need to show too much, give too much away. He willingly gave information, said Liechtenstein, but carefully avoided speaking of himself and his connection with the blacks. 
This sly evasion, which was often accompanied by a roguish smile that spoke the inward consciousness of his strength, made him much more interesting to us. De Beuys was an understated man, apart from the fact that he was six foot seven, almost seven feet tall, they say. His beard flowed like Abraham, and his girth was something to behold. As I said, he was the only man or woman present who was completely fluent in both Isitkosa and Dutch. And furthermore, he was a master at the idiomatic subtleties of each. He also understood the fears of both people. The Dutch needed him to interpret, but when they pushed him to talk of the Amatkosa in Dutch, he stopped. He did not want to speak behind Ingrika's back. He also knew that Janssens wanted him out of the Zurfeld for good. And so, six years after John Barrow made the trip to Inglika's great place, Janssens and Inglika spoke of the same assurances. Promises were made, some doubts expressed. The same. Janssens wanted the Amatkosa out of the Zurfeld back across the Fish River, but Inglika, of course, could not order Nklambe and Kungwa's people to leave, so he wouldn't promise this. Janssens and party, having observed all the kingliness in Inglika, thought that he could wave his magisterial arm and all Amatkosa would follow his command. They did not realize, as the English did not realize, that Inglika did not have control over the Rarabe as a whole. He could order Nklambe to leave the Zufelt, but his uncle would have just laughed and ignored him. Inglika, however, loved the idea that the Amatkosa belonged east of the Fish River and readily agreed to this as the boundary. Perhaps the Batavian Republic would come back and finish off what the VOC and then the British had started. Then he could rule unopposed. Finally, both turned to the touchy subject of Kunrad the base. Frontier renegade, bandit, lover of Inglika's mother, Yesi. Janssens wanted him to return to the colony, but Inglika refused. Eventually it was agreed, with the base interpreting his own future, that the burly Boer would have to abandon the frontier, his beloved Zurfeld. What was he going to do? Well, he himself appeared to suddenly agree to leave. He was 40 and had survived an intensely dangerous phase of his life living with Inglika, with whom, as you've heard, he had a love-hate relationship. The Batavians had heard so much of this man that they actually offered him a strong escort so that Inglika or some other Amakosa would refrain from killing him as he left. Meanwhile, back in Europe, war had broken out between England and France once more, and this was going to have a massive effect on Kunrat the base, the frontier Trekpurs, the Amatkosa, the Khoikhoi, and the whole of Southern Africa. But that's for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. To contact me, you can head off to my website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, salari ashi